I'm Shantanu Das. I'm a reader at King's College London, and I'm going to speak about the role of India, and particularly the Indian Sipoy, from the Persian word Sipahi, meaning soldier in the First World War. And though my focus will be on India, I'd like you to think about the global and particularly the colonial dimensions of the conflict, and also its valency for the diasporic community settled in Europe and America. How does the First World War continue to resonate for these diasporic communities? At the very heart of London, at the crossing of Constitution Hill and Hyde Park, the curious traveler comes across what may initially seem a little remnant of Orientalism, a white dome-shaped structure, or chhatri as it is called, flanked by four massive palely gleaming pillars. This is the Indian War Memorial framed by the Commonwealth Memorial Gates. The gates were inaugurated in 2002 by the Queen to honor, the inscription says, and I quote, the five million volunteers from the Indian subcontinent, Africa and the Caribbean who fought with Britain in the two world wars. Of these five million men, the Indian subcontinent, comprising present-day India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, contributed one and a half million men, including 900,000 combatants and 600,000 non-combatants to the First World War alone. They fought in France, Belgium, Mesopotamia, Palestine, East Africa, Gallipoli, and in the Far East. But fighting for the empire at the time of the first nationalist uprising, the Indian soldiers have been doubly marginalized. They're doomed to wander in the no man's land between the elitist nationalist historiography of India on one hand and the grand narrative of the Great War, which even today remains distressingly Eurocentric. Between 1914 and 1918, in a grotesque reversal of Joseph Conrad's vision, hundreds of thousands of non-white men were sailing to the heart of whiteness and beyond to witness the horror, the horror of Western warfare. Indeed, if we visited Ypres during the war time, one would have seen Indian sepoys, Tirelia Senegalese, North African Spahis, Chinese and Indo-Chinese workers, Egyptian and South African Labour Corps, Maori Pioneer Battalion, First Nation Canadians, Aboriginal Australians, in addition to the white troops and workers from Europe and the British Dominions. Indeed, the very idea of First World War changes if instead of the over-articulate lyricism of a Wilfredoen or perhaps Eric Remarque, we take as a lead point the words of a Malawi woman water carrier who said, I went to the war to eat, that is all, to eat. In recent years, there has been an increasing attention to the global and colonial dimensions of the conflict, but the color of great war and modern memory, to go back to that famous phrase of Paul Fussell's, still remains 
largely white. But then memory exists silently, stubbornly. In the diary of an Australian private, Charles Tinson, one comes across a page where an Indian sepoy had signed his name, Pakkar Sin, in three languages, Gurmukhi, Urdu, and English. At the very middle of Delhi, one comes across the India Gate, which was, we often forget, a First World War memorial to the Indian war dead created by Edwin Lutyens. Or for example, in the Bombay post office, the Bombay General Post Office, that is, one finds a tablet to the memory of, again, the Indian war dead. Indeed, if one goes through the villages near Ypres, one still can come across a barn which actually billeted the Indian sepoys. The barn still remains unaltered and one can actually physically inhabit the spaces that the Indian sepoys must have done between 1914 and 1918. Or for example, the road that became the front line for the Indian troops that still goes through Ypres. Going to my own extended family in Calcutta, I came across the war mementos of Captain Dr. Monindranath Das, who served as a doctor in Mesopotamia. We have here in the picture a dispatch signed by Churchill, then his mess tin from which he had his food, and perhaps most curiously, a German shell case that he found in Mesopotamia and he carried back to India. But most poignant for me, perhaps that two kind of artifacts I came across in a little archive just outside Calcutta in the French colony of Chandanagar. There were some artifacts and a pair of broken bloodstained glasses placed alongside a photograph of a young man in military uniform. The label identified him as, I quote, Dr. J. N. Sen, MD, MRCS, Private, West Yorkshire Regiment. He was the first Bengali, a citizen of Chandanagar, killed in 1914-1918 war. And that raises questions about how one relates to the First World War. Was he fighting as a private in the West Yorkshire Regiment, that is, as an English subject? Or, for example, as a citizen of Chandanagar, which wasn't a British but a French colony? Or was he fighting as a Bengali, which was famously a non-martial race? A total of 140,000 Indian troops were sent to France till December 1919. They took part in some of the fiercest battles, including that at New Chapelle, incurring heavy casualties and earning the first Victoria Crosses to be earned by the British Indian Army. Most of the sepoys, some 500,000, however, served in Mesopotamia. It is important to note in this context that while the Indian soldiers were allowed to fight in Europe, the Maori, African and West Indian soldiers were not allowed to fight on European soil 
showing the racist, showing the hierarchies within the racist ideology. But how were the Indians represented at the time and how did they write about their experiences? Now during the war years, the Indian sepoys were endlessly photographed and painted, at once fanning and fueling into colonial fantasies of power and privilege. But it was the popular press of the time that had its finger on the pulse of the moment. There are two pictures here, both taken from the war illustrated in 1914. The first is labelled Terror by Night, the Gurkhas at Work. It appeared on the 7th of November and I'll read out the caption. The fighting qualities of the Gurkhas, the little hillmen from northern India, are well known. In addition to a rifle, the Gurkha carries a keen knife with a broad fish-shaped blade. The knife he can throw for some distance with deadly accuracy. With cat-like noiselessness, the Gurkha, knife in hand or in teeth, can glide to the grass until he's close to the oscillated outpost and then comes the fatal throw. The second picture that you see is titled How the Sikhs and Gurkhas Cut Up the German Line. Indeed, the Gurkha with the Kukri captured popular imagination, featuring in various accounts, but the best story is perhaps apocryphal. Apparently a Gurkha encountering a German soldier in the trench swished his Kukri and said, you wait German, wait until you try to nod your head which means he had already chopped off the head. And the German nodded his head and the head rolled off. In a war marked by industrial weaponry, invisibility and passivity, the image of the Gurkha with the Kukri negotiated complex racial fantasies. After all, Freud, writing in Times of the Time in War and Death in 1915, says how during the First World War, we almost reverted back to our primeval, savage conditions. The Indian sepoy was a throwback to the notion of warfare as hand-to-hand -hand adventure, as combat, poised between wishfulment and horror, between colonial valor and native barbarity. But what about the inner emotional world of the Indian sepoys, transported from small, Indian villages to the killing fields of Europe or Mesopotamia or East Africa. Unlike the case of British, French and German troops, we do not have detailed diaries, poems, memoirs or novels. For these were often non-literate people because the British government recruited largely non-literate sepoys in accordance with the martial race theories of the time. But we, what we have instead are thousands of letters. These were letters that were either written or largely dictated by the sepoys to scribes. Then they were translated into English and then extracted for the colonial censors. And these extracted translated letters still survive and are housed in the British Library and in the Cambridge University Library. And they enable us for once to recover 
not just the racial, but also the plebeian dimensions of the conflict to construct almost an emotional history of the First World War from the racial subaltern. And an excellent se uh, selection of these letters have been edited by David Omesi, called The Voices of the Great War, Soldiers' Letters 1914 to 1918. These letters open up the private tremulous body of the Indian sepoys as they, as they encounter love and war and trauma in foreign lands. And I'll just read out two letters, both written in 1915, the first from a battlefield in France and the second from the Kitchener's Indian Hospital. And in the first letter, in fact, the first letter comprises of two parts. Initially, the sepoy describes an offensive and inserted within it is a little scrap of paper where he writes, and I quote, God knows whether the land of France is stained with sin or whether the day of judgment has begun in France. For guns and of rifles there is a deluge, bodies upon bodies and blood flowing. God preserve us what has come to pass. From dawn to dark and from dark to dawn it goes on like the hell that fell at Swara camp. But especially our guns have filled the German trenches with dead and made them brim with blood. God grant us grace, for grace is needed. O God, we repent. O God, we repent. This is from Amir Khan, uh, written in Urdu on the 18th of March, 1915. And the second letter is from a convalescent sepoy in the Kitchener's Indian War Hospital. The state of affairs here is as follows. The black pepper is finished. Now the red pepper is being used, but occasionally the black pepper proves useful. The black pepper is very pungent and the red pepper is not so strong. This is a secret, but you are a wise man. In a way, he gives away the secret by saying it's a secret. The red pepper refers to the English soldiers and the black pepper to the Indian sepoys. And this is a coded message intended to hoodwink the colonial censors, basically saying, don't send more troops. Rather than treating these letters as the transparent envelope of French experience or documents of cultural otherness, we need to evolve careful strategies of reading that address not only what they say, but how they say and what they do not say. And I would say these are like palimpsests rather than transcripts. And we really need to decode what's going on. They also portray the sepoys as complex, active, thoughtful, if circumscribed agents, going against almost the conventional ideas of the sepoys as just passive victims, as passive receptacles of war trauma or of occidental ecstasy. The social reality of these troops are rooted from their village and conscripted into the most brutal form of industrial warfare, finds one of its most evocative accounts in the Indo-British writer Mulkrajanan's novel Across the Black Waters, written in 1939, as the clouds for another war loomed on the horizon and the colonies were summoned again to provide.
Anand is now largely forgotten in accounts of literary history, but he was an important figure in the literary and political map of early 20th century London, one of the few Indo-British novelists at that time. And the novel is dedicated to the memory of his soldier father, who, have may, who may have undergone training for the First World War, though I don't think he actually was mobilized. But Anand would have definitely come in contact with lots of his father's friends who would have come back from Mesopotamia or from France. And Anand's novel opens up a whole new world in First World War fiction written in English, as Anand shows the protagonist Lalu Singh and his associates, a group of villagers from Punjab, disembark at Marseille and encounter Western culture and warfare for the first time. Now in a context where we do not have those exhaustive letters or memoirs or poems that form the cornerstone of European war memory, Anand's novel fills us to recover the emotional history of the Indian war experience and fill in the gap left by actual historical accounts. And I shall leave you with one final image which raises questions about the valency of the war for today. In April 1999, a large group of Sikhs from France and Belgium made a pilgrimage to Ypres. These men were commemorating the contributions of their forefathers who fought in the First World War. But it was also a very important statement of how multicultural Europe sees itself at the moment, of how these men were trying to align their own ethnic identity with the defining event of early 20th century Europe. As we prepare for the centennial commemorations of the First World War, it is important to recover and examine these different voices bearing testimony to the international nature. But at the same time, we need to be extremely alert. We need to remain alert to the fact that it is basically a history of violence and trauma and killing that we are talking about. And consequently, safeguard the uses, particularly the political uses, its legacy can be put to. Thanks.